Using business software from the Access Group makes every day. And efficiency's up 40%, which feels... <laughs> Visit theaccessgroup.com.au forward slash working wonders and find out how great it feels when work works better. Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. This week we have another great guest, and it's Tom Carey. He is a 30-year researcher into Roswell. He's from the Philadelphia area. He holds a degree from Temple University, a BS in Business Administration. He went to Cal State University, where he holds where he earned a master's and MA in anthropology. He also attended the University of Toronto's PhD program in anthropology as well. He's a veteran, served in the Air Force. He held a top secret crypto clearance, which we're certainly going to talk about. And he also just let me in that, that, that uh, he passed up a Major League Baseball career and then got sick and never could do it. But uh, because of that, um, he didn't get to play with Hammer and Hank. The Milwaukee Braves were one of the teams interested. Uh, but he did give us a, a life of research. Um, he's very well embedded into the UFO study community. He uh, has been a part of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. He was the state section director. He was a special investigator with the J. Allen Hynek Center, if anyone doesn't know what that is. Uh, it's named after, the. if anyone saw Project Blue Book, that, that's J. Allen Hynek. Um, and uh, 
So he's also been on the Kufos board of directors, uh, written 10 books, appeared on numerous TV shows, radio shows. I'm sure you've heard of Art Bell's Coast to Coast, of course, Fox and Friends, Larry King Live, you name it, History Channel shows, Sci-Fi Channel shows, Travel Channel shows. He even appeared in the, as an interview in the DVD um, bonus section uh, when they re-released the 1951 classic, The Day the Earth Stood, Stood Still, not the redo with Keanu Reeves, so the original. Um, so without further ado, we're going to welcome in Tom Carey. Thank you for joining us, Tom. Nice to be with you, Jeffrey. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, here. And welcome to the Garden of Doom and, and uh, uh, hopefully not too much doom today. Maybe, well, who knows? We'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I mean, is there any part of your biography that uh, you want to fill in the blanks on or did I get that okay? You, uh, you pretty much covered the waterfront. Excellent. Um, I do want to get clarification. What is a top secret crypto clearance? Well, you, you know what top secret is. That's the high level of security. You have to be investigated by the FBI and or other security people to obtain a top secret clearance. Now, the crypto part of it is uh, when you're in the military and they want to send a message from one base to another, it's encrypted. They don't send it out in clear text. It's encrypted and it, out it goes. And when it's received, it has to be decrypted. Well, there's a machine that does that, and it machine. So that's what the crypto part of it is. Is I took care of the cryptographic machine that uh, encrypted all the messages and decrypted all of the mess messages. So that's where you get the top secret crypto. It doesn't. Uh, the the uh, designation does not entitle me to look at anything else in the military of a top secret nature it's just um it's just related to this crypto process i could i could view anything that's top secret in cryptography but i can't look at say a uh, uh a top secret memorandum having to do with uh, ufos or anything like that so it's, uh, it's just uh, focused on uh cryptography cryptology encryption and uh, you need a top secret clearance to uh, to uh, uh, work on a machine. Fair enough. No, no, no going after werewolves or anything like that. But okay, we'll we'll <laughs> we'll settle for the truth. So obviously, you've spent basically the last thirty years of your life researching UFOs and primarily, well, I don't know about primarily, but at least substantially Roswell and. You seem to be, if not the, at least one of the foremost experts on Roswell. Numerous books, um, again, studied it. 30 years is not an exaggeration. It says you're 1991, and uh, we're approaching 2022. And for about 24 years of that with, with uh, a partner, so you're sort of like the, the real-life Fox and Mulder, um, I guess without the FBI. Um, so... Tell me, how did you get into this? What first got you interested in this, and how did this turn into a career path, or or, or, or did you just have no choice? Excellent question, uh, Jeffrey. Because uh, I was in, when I was in school, both in high school and college, I was a three sport athlete, 
my only interest in was was when's the next game, you know, and uh, whenever we had to uh, write a paper or, uh, or do a book report, I would let it go until the night before. That that's how good a student I was, right? <laughs> I'd head for the class of comic books, so never never fancied myself as a writer. Well. As a teenager, I was uh, interested in UFOs. I, I uh, first in newspaper articles that the, you know, saying, what are these? What are these things that are flying around our skies? That are latest fighter planes? They can't, they can't seem to catch up to them. What? And, uh, are, are they piloted by beings from another world? What is, what is this stuff? So I was already interested in UFOs as a teenager. Well. In 1980, I'm jumping ahead here. In 1980, uh, this book came out called The Roswell Incident mm -hmm. by William Moore and Charles Berlitz. Well, Charles Berlitz was the uh, language guy. Uh, uh, he would publish books on uh, speak German or speak uh, French, you know what I mean? Well, he had just written a book on the Bermuda Triangle. And he was very popular at the moment in 1980. The work for that book was done by William Moore, who had just written a book called The Philadelphia Experiment mm -hmm. about a, uh, a ship that allegedly went invisible, uh, a destroyer uh, that they made invisible in 1943, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he wrote a book on that. But Stanton Friedman was the other one. He worked with uh, William Moore to uh, interview perhaps as many as 60 people. Uh, Stanton Friedman actually opened the, the civilian investigation of the Roswell case in 1978. It had lain dormant for 30 years because back in 1947, when the, the alleged crash occurred, it was a two-day story. It was a two-day story. The first day, the headline was RAAF. That's uh, that's not the Royal Air Air Force or the uh, Royal uh, Canadian Air Force. It, it meant Roswell Army Airfield near Roswell. They had uh, uh, recovered a flying saucer, as they called them back then. And that headline went around the world. And... Uh, Everybody uh, got excited because the the modern age of UFOs began only a week and a half earlier in the Washington State with the Kenneth Arnold sighting, July, June 24, 1947. Well, this was July 2nd, 1947, week and a half later, and this headline, they made flying saucer, we got a flying saucer. And everybody gets excited. Well, the very next day, the headline comes out. Oh, folks, sorry. It wasn't a flying saucer. It was a weather balloon. Right. And uh, a weather balloon, they had have been better off if, if, you know, they wanted to kill the story. Because, you know, you come into possession of something like that. You have the technology to deal with. And you've got little bodies. What do you do with those? And uh, you have the Cold War, war beginning with the Soviet Union. We don't want them to get the technology. And the Russians were very good at putting spies in. They had spies in the Manhattan Project uh, galore. And they wound up uh, detonating their own uh, atomic device in 1949. Well, 
the uh, story was killed. They killed the story in the press. It went away for 30 years. And lo and behold, in 1978, the base, uh, the, the uh, intelligence officer on the air base south of Roswell, where the 509th bomb group was based. Now, the 509th was our elite military unit at the time. This was the unit that dropped two atomic bombs on Japan to end World War II. After the war, it was based in Roswell, 509th Bomb Group. Jesse Marcel was the base intelligence officer. So in 1978, he's got emphysema. He doesn't know how much longer he's got. He starts talking on his ham radio network. He was a, he had his own ham radio being in, in uh, having uh, handled pieces of wreckage from a, a UFO, as they now call them. And before, and, I, I just want to interject because I, I, I think that folks, a lot of my listeners are probably younger than I am. I'm 50, I'm almost 53. You're, you're a little bit older than me. And when people hear ham radio, they're thinking about something weird. Ham radio was the podcasting of the 60s and the 70s. Uh, you know, CBs were also sort of there, like what the truckers use. But ham radio, any kid who had the ham radio, they were the coolest kid on their block. All the kids would go there and do ham radio, and you would have ham radio, sort of like outlaw radio shows and, and, and things like that. So ham radio really is the precursor to uh, the, the podcast. So you'd find all sorts of stuff there. So... Uh, it, it wasn't just, you know, sort of lone hermits, you you know, that lived, you know, where there was no other signals other than AM, um, you know, or UHF that were using ham radios back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so, and, and each, you know, each, each, each ham operator had their own handle, you know, breaker, breaker, or I don't know if they, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he started, uh, Marcel started talking about having recovered pieces of a UFO wreckage uh, 30 years earlier. Well, word got around. And uh, so in 1978, Stan Friedman's down there in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, doing a TV interview on his famous UFOs are real. Uh, shtick that he did and uh, after the show the producer said well you know there's a guy over in Homa, Louisiana you want to talk to his name is Jesse Marcel he claims to have had some flying saucer so when Stan is on his way back home he the, he's at the airport he gives Jesse Marcel a call to see what he's got and it's, it impressed Stan sufficiently that when he got back home he teamed up with um uh, William Moore, and they found a. Uh, they went to the library and found a, a uh, microfiche of the headline back from 1947: RAAF captures flying saucer in Roswell region. So that began the civilian investigation of the Roswell incident. Two years later, they published a book in 1980 called The Roswell Incident. Tom Carey reads it and is blown away by it. All other UFO cases, uh, to me, at that point, just fell into irrelevancy because it had, you know, a crashed, a crashed disc, 
You had dead bodies, dead little bodies with big heads. You had a cover-up. You had death threats. You had this story had everything. And for me, uh, that was my focus as far as UFOs was concerned for the rest uh, the rest of my uh, investigation. So uh, ten years goes by before the next book comes out. Now it's uh, 1990. And I'm, uh, I've, I've subscribed to J.M. J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies bi-monthly uh, report called the International UFO Reporter. And I read about these two guys, well, one named uh, Kevin Randall and the other named Don Schmidt. They were reopening the Roswell investigation because after the... You know, the first book in 1980, nothing essentially had happened. There was not another book on the on the case. So I'm reading, oh boy, we got two more guys that are opening it. So I called up Kevin Randall. I said, what have you done about trying to find the archaeologists who allegedly discovered this uh, crash? Because by this time I had a MA in anthropology. I'm older, uh, had my PhD work in anthropology, of which archaeology is a subset. So I said, what have you done about finding the archaeologists who supposedly were from Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania? He said, well, we, we interviewed one or two archaeologists, uh, but they, they didn't go anywhere, so we sort of dropped it. I said, look, I'm living in Philadelphia. Let me go down to the university and look around and see what I can find out. And uh, that's how I started. This is 1991 now. This, that's how I started. So I went down to Penn to the U Museum of Archaeology and we're looking for certain archaeologists and we found one, I found one, who was allegedly at the crash site. He denied it and I believed him. Back then, uh, Jeffrey, we were considering the plains of San Augustine near Socorro as the crash site. And uh, this archaeologist uh, was uh, out of the University of New Mexico. And he said, no, that's somewhere. He was over in Arizona doing work with the Apaches for his, his PhD. And, you know, he, could, he convinced me that it wasn't him. So, well, uh, that was my introduction to actually working on the case and just not reading about it. Was trying to find the archaeologists who allegedly had discovered the crash. Okay. And that's 1991. So uh, I did. We did find the archaeologists. They weren't from Penn, but there were students at the university from the University of Pennsylvania, working in New Mexico at the time, and I identified two. I know the one of them, when I called him, when I mentioned Roswell, he slammed the phone down on <laughs> me, which convinced me that he, <laughs> I struck a nerve. <laughs> so what's in, yeah. But, uh, but they were from, they were from the University, they were from Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas, you know, Buddy Holly's hometown. Sure. Uh, they, they were from Texas Tech, and, uh, and uh, the other one was from the University of Nebraska. And so we, we also relocated the crash site from the plains of San, uh, San Augustine, where no, 
1947, where we concluded, to just north of Roswell. We had a lot of witnesses. We came up, but as we sit here, Jeffrey, we have over 600 first and second hand witnesses to an extraterrestrial crash. Wow. Over 600 first and second hand witnesses. So that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years with Don Schmidt, originally with Kevin Randall too, but he, he left the field basically in 1995. He split with Schmidt. I teamed up with Schmidt in 1998. We've been a team ever since. And like I said, we've uh, this book, uh, our latest book is called Touched by Roswell. It's a little different. It, it doesn't list witnesses, you know, or the other the other nine, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, putting the case together. Right. Uh, this happened at this date, and so-and-so was involved in that, and we have him on the, on the you know, on the, uh, a written document attesting to that fact. And But this one's a little different. Uh, I can I can mention that a little later, but uh, I read it, so I, I I actually know what it's it's about. It, it it lists a whole bunch of sort of famous people, celebrities who are in some way, shape, or form connected to Roswell and impacted by it. And you know, there's some like Jimmy Carter is one, but yes. one of the ones that was really interesting to me and stuck with me is Ted Danson. Apparently, his father was was an officer. You know, that in in roswell around the time and and he was t- he was really impacted by it and and that always left an impression uh ted danson but they were yeah. ted, ted danson when i was looking for the archaeologist jeffrey uh one of the things that i did was i went down to the uh, university of pennsylvania museum of archaeology went to the library and in archaeology they have several journals you know monthly, bi-monthly, whatever. And one of them is called American Archaeology. And every January, the January of every year, it lists, it, it discusses all was done the year before. So I got the January 1948 edition of American Archaeology and opened it up. And one of the things that was going on was this team of archaeologists from Harvard that was headed by a fellow named Dr. James Otis Brew, B-R-E-W, and his assistant was a Edward Danson. I said, oh my God, I wonder if that's Ted Danson's father. And uh, it turned, so I I wrote to uh, the Cheers star, Ted Danson, it was Sam Malone, the bartender in uh, Cheers. So I, I sent it to, I think it was Paramount, in Hollywood, I said, Dear Mr. Danson, I'm writing you not to tell you what a great show you have, which you do, <laughs> but I want to find out is your father, uh, was he an archaeologist uh, uh, from the Harvard University? And he wrote back, he said, ah, Yes, he was. And so he sent my letter on to his father, whose nickname is Ned, N E D Danson. So you have Ted Danson and Ned Danson, right. his father. And so uh, Ned Danson writes me back and he sends me a picture, a nice picture of himself, which is in the book. And he, he looks a lot like Ted, doesn't he? Yep. <laughs> and he said, yes, he was, he was in uh, Arizona. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, they were doing a survey along the upper Gila river. And, and in July, 
they crossed over into New Mexico onto the plains of San Augustine. I'm thinking, oh my God, here it is. He's going to tell me that he was there and that he found, and he said, nope, but nothing happened. There was nothing going on as far as he knew. And they spent a, about a month on the plains. And I'm thinking, my goodness, well, he was there at the right time that this thing allegedly crashed, and he's saying nothing happened. So uh, we cover that story uh, in the book, uh, Jeffrey, and uh, uh, it was when I was looking for the archaeologists early on in my uh, uh, investigation of the case. But uh, they, you know, uh, they were kind enough to to follow up with me on it, and uh, so we cover we cover that in the book. Yeah, no, it's fun. That book is, uh, it's probably around 40 different people. They're mostly household names. I mean, what General Wesley Clark was one of them. I, I mean, I can't remember them all. It's probably, I mean, it's... Yeah, the it, difference is that they are not like, like in our previous books, you know, we, we have witness, you know, military witnesses. We have civilian witnesses. These are people that their, their aim was not to investigate the Roswell case, but they're just had their people, actors and actresses, sports people, that somehow uh, they, they intersected with the Roswell uh, case at some point in their life. Yeah, and it's a very easy read, and, it's, it's, and also if you prefer audiobooks, it's a very easy listen. I, for one, have trouble with audiobooks because my mind tends to wander, um, and that's not good with heavy books. Um, but th th this one's easier. The chapters are short. You know, it's basically each person's story, so it's 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 very consumable. Anyway, back back to our our heavy part. So we're in uh, uh, somewhere between ninety one and ninety eight when you met Schmidt and Randall, and then uh, started partnering with uh, Schmidt exclusively. Um, you were looking for the archaeologists. Um, and that transition at some point you must have found something that's that said to you I gotta stick with this I gotta I gotta keep on this grindstone Here, here's the thing uh, Jeffrey is that say you have 10 10 leads nine of them will lead to nothing but it's that one it's like a recharge mm -hmm. every time I got it and this holds for Dodge too you can get nine rejections uh, but you hit that one that knows something that just it's like a you know it's like the old telegraph and you have to keep recharging it and uh that's what ha would happen oh boy we got another we got another witness and it just it just carries it just pushes you on to do to continue on and that's that's what happened uh for for the 600 witnesses first and second hand that we have we probably have another thousand leads that didn't uh, materialize into everything anything oh sure but it's the it's the hits it's the hits that you get and at some point we felt oh boy we have got this case nailed we have got it nailed which and everything after that you know the new witnesses that we get are just reinforcing what we had already concluded but you still want those you know for corroboration and that's the way the uh, the investigation worked. It just was so the case was so interesting, and we and, and I'd have to think hard to where we actually uh, there was no other conclusion we could come to. It was fairly uh, early in the case. I would have to tell you, um, probably 
1991 or 92, which is, for me was early, uh, when we had a witness called um, Edwin Easley. He was the base provost marshal. He was the top policeman on the base. He, he was in charge of the MPs, or the APs in the Air Force. Uh, we used to call them apes <laughs> for air police. And uh, so he was in charge of them. And so he was in charge of securing the crash site, okay? And we have witnesses who saw him there. And so we actually interviewed him on his deathbed. He, I mean, he was literally on his deathbed when we interviewed him. And actually, Randall interviewed him. And uh, to every one of Randall's questions, because this was at a time that we still weren't quite sure if we were on the right track or not, whether it was a crash of a UFO or not. Maybe it was, you know, this is that early in the case. So to every question that Randall asked him, he said, I'm sorry, I can't answer that. I'm sworn I'm, I'm sworn to secrecy. Next question, I'm sworn to secrecy. So uh, for me, I would have given up, you know? I would have given up, but the guy's not gonna talk. He's not gonna talk. So Randall, is only, he, 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 gives, he, does, he gives him a throwaway question. He says, well, uh, can you tell us if we're going in the right direction or not? And so Easley says, uh, right direction, what, what do you mean? He says, well, in the UFO direction. So there's a long pause. And he says, well, let me put it this way. You're not going in the wrong direction. So he, he, he didn't give a positive affirmation. He says, you're not going in the wrong direction. So at that point, we knew... Because he was a high-ranking officer, he was a provost marshal. And he promised the president, President Truman, that he would never talk about it. And he didn't until, until we got to him. And he, so at that point, we knew it was the crash of a UFO. And so we kept that, you know, that track for the rest of our investigation. Okay. Well, let's work backwards then. So let's work with the conclusion. What happened at Roswell? It was the crash of a craft of unknown origin from another planet, uh, most likely from another solar system, uh, that traveled. Uh, I'll get to I'll get to how they travel later. And there were five occupants. There were five beings. Four were killed. It didn't crash. It exploded in the air. Most likely, if it was not an internal explosion, it was struck by lightning because we have a number of witnesses who heard a muffled explosion that was not a thunderclap, but a, 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 a different type of explosion the night of July 2nd, 1947, during a thunder and lightning storm. And the next day, the rancher named Mac Brazel, sheep rancher, He's out checking his uh, uh, ranch, you know, for damaged fence or how the sheep are. And he comes across this big field, <coughs> excuse me, this uh, the size of three football fields full of strange metallic wreckage. And uh, he can't figure it out what, what it is because it's totally different than anything he ever 
never had seen or handled before. And uh, about two and a half miles east of that site, there's another little site, there's a bluff where he found two dead bodies, two little dead bodies with big heads. That's the overriding feature of these large pear-shaped heads with a frail body. So uh, a couple of days later, because this is like the uh, 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 Fourth of July weekend, you know. So when we Sunday, say uh, little bodies, how how little is little, or how big is little? Uh, three and a half to four feet tall. Okay, so like a ten-year-old kid. Yes, yes, and that's how that's how uh, Walter described them, uh, or. Uh, Blanchard, the base commander, described him like a 10-year-old child uh, with a big head. And um, so uh, Brassel drives into town, into Roswell, to the sheriff's office because he wants somebody out there to pick that stuff up because he's worried about his sheep because they won't cross that. He won't cross that area. They they won't cross that area to get to the water. So he wants somebody out there to pick that stuff up. And so... um, Did anyone... I'm sorry to interrupt. Did anyone back then know about radiation? Were they afraid of radiation? Or was that... It it was 1947, 1949. It just was... Nobody thought that. The military did. The military did. But not the The rancher. The the civilians didn't know. Okay. The civilians didn't know. Uh, but the military did, and we know they did check it for radiation, and they said it wasn't. There was no radiation. So, um, although mysteriously, over the years, a uh, extraordinary number of uh, civilians in Roswell have died of cancer. So uh, it makes you wonder. So. Um, no, it would make me wonder. Actually, the uh, the opposite. If 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 they didn't, I mean, if there's a lot of radiation, I, I wonder. Has there anything? Has there been anything unusual attributed to the livestock? Like, has, has, has the meat not been approved or have the sheep not, not been able to procreate? Or is, are there any no, records on stuff? Been, there's been no no investigation of that. It's not like the cattle mutilations where they, you know, they, they uh, uh, the cattle have been dissected apparently. And uh, this is, I guess, that's in what, Colorado or Wyoming. But there's been no investigation of the sheep other than they would not cross that pasture for two years after after all that stuff was cleaned up they still wouldn't cross that pasture they sense obviously they sent something what it was we don't know but uh well if they there's still cross that pasture. if there's still any investigation in you you want to pass something off to uh, an intern or something follow the sheep I, I if the people got sick I bet the sheep got sick too and I I I bet there was some uh, strange animal breeding and and food incidents. <laughs> we we have if there was we haven't heard of any. Well, you said uh, nobody's looked into it, so heck, maybe a month something. You never know. Well, the unfortunately the the, the main crash site, which is the one well, the Brazil Ranch, is off limits now because they have a new owner. It's uh, it's on BLM land, Bureau of Land Management uh, land. But uh, it's surrounded totally by private property. Sure, but it's so, not off limits to the sheep. The sheep don't care. Well, well, we can't get to them. You know, it's private right. property. No, I mean in the in the in the last well seventy years, uh, you know, there there were at some point there were probably you know if all of a sudden like oh there was like a a lamb shortage for thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Jeffrey, our mandate was to find as many witnesses as we could. Uh, Don Schmidt lives in Wisconsin. I live in Pennsylvania. Uh, our resources are limited, and uh, we felt that our mandate was to find witnesses. People not sheep. Uh, <laughs> Drop the sheep. Yes, yes. And, and nobody complained about the sheep. But we just did notice that there seemed to be a lot of people that died of cancer. Uh, in, in Roswell, and uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't make a big deal about it, but we we did make the note that hmm, boy, this seems to be a little odd here. And uh, uh, I did find out from one of the first-hand witnesses that a lot of the uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there was a lot of. Uh, I don't. It couldn't have been the wreckage from the craft, because that all went to Wright Patterson. But uh, they had uh, conducted some atomic. See, because Roswell was an atomic base, the Roswell 509th Bomb Group. They were created to drop the atomic bomb during World War II. It still exists today. At uh, Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, their mission again is only to, in time of war, to drop atomic devices. And they use different aircraft. They don't use B-29s anymore. They use the uh, B-2 Spirit uh, stealth bombers and things like that. But um, my understanding from one of the witnesses that some hazardous material was buried in uh, along a certain road in Roswell, and he showed me where it was. I says, "Well, I said, well, do the people of Roswell know that?" And he says, "No." So I tried to alert them of that, but they didn't—they <laughs> didn't seem to care. So I, I, you know, so. But anyway, uh, east, just you know, just east, two miles east, there, were, there was a low bluff, and two of the two of the uh, beings had when the ship exploded. We think it was struck by lightning if, if it wasn't an internal explosion. Two beams were thrown out, and they came to their demise on this low bluff, and Brazel found those two. And uh, so he goes into Roswell, tells the sheriff, the sheriff, the sheriff, Sheriff Wilcox, George Wilcox, he says it was the biggest mistake of his life that he called the air base. He said, I should have called somebody in the media or some, somebody in private, uh, somebody private to investigate this because it wouldn't have gotten covered up. But he called the air base. He said it was the biggest mistake of his life. They come out and they swear everybody the secrets don't, don't go out to the site. Uh, because the civilians had already gotten to the site. They were the first ones there. You know, the, the ranchers, the children, the ranch, they were the first ones in the site. The military gets out there and they uh, sequester everybody, threaten them with uh, death if they talk, uh, the, whole, the whole ball of wax, and they covered everything up. Nevertheless, they put out that uh, headline on July the 8th that they had recovered a flying saucer. Now, was that a local faux pas, or was that orchestrated by Washington? This is what the only play, this is the only thing where Don Schmidt and I disagree. This is the only disagree, and it's a mild disagreement. I think it was a local faux pas, and Don thinks it was orchestrated from Washington uh, with a, a false headline. 
Okay. And uh, so we we disagree on that. But uh, they had they would have been better off if they if they wanted to change the story, they would have been better off if they say it was one of their top flight experimental jets or sure. something like that. We wouldn't be talking today. But this they come up with this cockamamie weather balloon story that nobody believes, except at the time the press did. But uh, uh, it's just even a six-year-old can recognize balsa wood, tin foil, and rubber. That's basically <laughs> what it, what it was made out of. But uh, it killed the story until uh, Jesse Marcel went public uh, thirty years later. So uh, that's. At the time, it was a two-day-old two story. So, but the story has everything, uh, Jeffrey. It's, it's got. We're talking about a, a real live craft, metal, metallic of some degree that can't be deformed in any permanent way. You can't scratch it. You can't burn it. You can't fold it up to where it creases. It just comes comes back to its original shape. It uh, has, uh, uh, there was one live entity. There were four dead and one. After the ship exploded and the two, two uh, beings were thrown out, the ship continued on for another 30 miles and came to rest much closer to Roswell, near to Highway 285. There were three beings in that part of the ship that withstood the explosion. Two met their death. But there was one still alive. And uh, we get that information from a firefighter for the city of Roswell. Uh, the uh, city manager had come into the fire station. Don't anybody go out here. We don't, don't, don't go out to the crash site. The military will take care of it. Military will take care of it. Don't, we, don't go out. As soon as this uh, one firefighter, he was a crew chief named Dan Dwyer, as soon as he heard that, he jumped in his car and out he went. So he got to the crash site even before the military got out there. And he said that uh, he, his eyes were drawn to the, the ship, what was left of the ship. Sure. But then he saw two beings that were sort of hanging out of the ship that were obviously dead. So he's looking at that at disbelief. But all of a sudden, he senses some movement off to his periphery. So he looks over, and there's a being that survived the uh, the explosion and the crash. One one of the three and a half foot tall with a large head beings from another world is there walking around. And so uh, his family, we got the story from his uh, daughter. So his family says, well, 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 did you talk to it, Dad? Did you, did you talk to it? He says, yes, we talked to one another. But we didn't talk like we're talking, by moving your mouth and your tongue. You know, we didn't talk that way. We talked to one another in our heads, meaning sort of something like mental telepathy. Sure. But what, what did you say? What did you say? What did you talk about? He, he, so he said, he told his family that, well, I was, I said, I was, I had sympathy for it because I was concerned about it. And all of a sudden, the being told me, not to worry about it, that he accepted his fate, or it's, it accepted its fate, that his comrades were dead, his ship was destroyed, and there wasn't anything anybody could do, that his 
that it had accepted its fate. And that was just the conversation when the military pulls up and uh, tells everybody, you know, to, okay, get out of here. Don't say anything or else we'll get you later. And uh, so uh, that's basically the, the, uh, the did, gist of the crash. Did you describe? Did you, I'm sorry. Did you, did you describe like the clothing, the skin color, uh, well, eyes, features, anything like that? Uh, Dan Dwyer did not. But uh, later on, after the uh, everything was shipped to Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, they had autopsies, right? They had autopsies. And we got a complete report from a fellow by the name of Leonard Stringfield, who had uh, lots of friends at uh, Dayton. I mean, he lived in Cincinnati, Wright Patterson's at Dayton. He had a lot of friends at the air base, and he got the uh, complete description of the beings from one of the uh, attending physicians who was present at the autopsy. And uh, there we learned about the, you know, it had these little membranes over the eyes and uh, the large head, uh, no blood, but the, and the insides were different. And, uh, uh, and the mouth was just a little slit, but the mouth itself didn't lead anywhere. It was just like a, a little sack that didn't lead to a, lead to a digestive tract or anything. Yeah. And uh, it had two little holes in front of the face uh, for the for where the nose would be, and two holes on the side of the head where the ears would be. So, and it was gray. It was gray, and the gray bluish, and, uh, three and a half to four feet tall. So we got that from Leonard Stringfield, who was a ufologist uh, out of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, he published uh, eight monographs on crashed UFOs. We call him the father of crashed UFOs uh, because up until uh, this case, uh, you remember Donald E. Kehoe? Sounds familiar. The 1940s and 1950s was the chief advocate for flying saucers, you know, flying saucers are real. He was Stan Friedman before there was Stan Friedman, and uh, but he would not. He would go. He would not go near stories about crash flying saucers or entities, bodies. He would not touch those subject, subjects because he felt it lessened the credibility of what he was trying to do to bring the the subject of. Uh, UFOs to a government investigation and hearings. And he thought the stories about little beings with big heads and the flying discs, uh, that was a bridge too far for him. So he stayed away from that. Okay. And that's why Leonard Stringfield, who did dive into that, uh, we call him the father of crashed UFOs. And what about uh, clothing or a uniform or anything, anything of that nature? Yes, yes. Uh, the the uniform, uh, I call it. It, it was it, some. It was almost like it was a second skin. It was so tight fitting that uh, uh, one observer called it almost. A, it was a second skin, rather than like a a, a cloth uh, outer covering. Any so, uh, symbols on it or ornaments, no. or was it just just like the same as the like a grayish blue, like the skin color? Yes, yes. 
that. Yes. Um, all right. So just to get my bearings a little bit, how far is Roswell from, say, Los Alamos, where they did the uh, the Manhattan Project? Yes. Uh, uh, Los Alamos is north of Albuquerque. And I know it. Uh, if I drive from Albuquerque to Roswell, it takes me three hours. So Los Alamos is about an hour north of Albuquerque. So that's that. I, I don't know how many miles that is, but that in time wise, it's about four hours from from Roswell. Uh, is Roswell north, south, east, west? No, Roswell is in the southeast quadrant of New Mexico. Okay. Yeah, Albuquerque's sort of in the middle. So okay, so so yeah, Albuquerque is in the uh, uh, just to the left. If you're looking at a map of it, it's just to the left of the center and up a bit. Right. So they're going towards Texas. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it, Roswell is towards Texas, not Arizona. Yes. Yes. If you if you take. Uh, I forget what the highway number is. Uh, if you just go east from Roswell, you go right into Lubbock. Okay. Uh, and a statue of Buddy Holly. Well, it's probably like 10 or 5 or something like that. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, and Area 51, is that on Roswell's grounds? No, Area 51 is northwest of Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay, I thought it was in Nevada. So yes. what, what is... Is there any relationship between Area 51 and, uh, and Roswell, or is that just something that's been conflated in pop culture? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we have a book. One of our books was called Inside the... You know, if I gave a talk, every time I give a talk, uh, Jeffrey, I'll say, how many people have heard of uh, uh, Area 51? And all the hands go up. Sure. All the hands go up. Yeah. Well, how many people have heard of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? And maybe one or two hands go up. Well, Patterson Air Force Base was Area 51 before there was an Area 51, meaning that's where all the high-tech new aircraft designs are tested. That's where they're developed, and that's where all of the foreign technology goes. And uh, Area 51 uh, didn't come into being until 1955 when they developed the U-2 spy plane. This is before satellites now, and they uh, they chose uh, the Groom Lake area northwest of uh, Las Vegas because of its remoteness and the flat surface. It's a, it's a dried up lake bed, right? It's a dried up lake bed, place to see, place to see lake bed, and uh, the uh, Kelly Johnson from the Lockheed aircraft company basically chose it and that's where they developed the u-2 and the sr-71 blackbird spy planes but it was also later on perhaps in the early 1980s that the the roswell wreckage and uh, at least the wreckage was transferred to area 51 in nevada okay imagine that convoy I'm sorry? Imagine that convoy. I mean, you either go really big or really small. Yes, yes. And uh, so that's where the wreckage uh, was transferred because uh, people were starting to hear about this Hangar 18 in, in uh, Wright-Patterson. 
about this Hangar 18 where all the the UFO artifacts were allegedly kept. So things were getting too too hot in Dayton. So they shipped it to Area 51 in Nevada. <laughs> Words that were never said before or after that's gotten too hot in Dayton. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, so um, the bodies, uh, well, so the... It, it was kept there at uh, in Nevada, but then Area 51 started becoming known, right? Sure, yeah. And uh, in 1996, uh, some of the workers at uh, Area 51 sued the U.S. government for hazardous material because they burned hazardous material there in open, open pits, and a lot of people got sick. So they sued the federal government uh, when Bill Clinton was the uh, president and uh, so they had finally they had to admit that yes there is a facility in uh, in area 50 uh, in Nevada northwest of it but they didn't name it and uh, but they had originally denied that there was anything there in, in northwest of Nevada of that nature but the lawsuit brought out the fact that oh there was something there of a serious nature and uh so they moved the ufo stuff from area 51 to area 52 do you know what area 52 was i do not it's a dugway proving grounds in utah okay in world war ii it was a bombing range just like just like area 51 was in uh uh, originally, it was a bombing test test range. So, so they really didn't get that creative. They just sort of moved north. Yes. So they moved. They moved the stuff to uh, Utah and, and Dugway, and uh, that's where the the bodies wound up. We think the bodies are still there. The, the five uh, Roswell bodies we think are still at Dugway in Utah. The uh, wreckage itself, uh, Jeffrey, is now in private hands. Now, I don't mean your Uncle Harry or Aunt Louisa. I mean private companies like uh, Bigelow Aerospace, Lockheed Martin, Brand, uh, Battelle Memorial Institute in uh, Columbus. That's those private hands. They have big government contracts, but they're still private companies, so they're not responsive to uh, FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests. Right. So that's where the wreckage is now. And uh, the bodies, the last we'd heard, uh, and this was a deathbed confession from a former head of the Foreign Technology Division at Wright-Patterson, uh, they're in uh, Utah, Dugway, Utah. What are they in? Are they in some sort of uh, embalming fluid or some sort of... Uh... I, I don't even know what the cryogenic chamber. I mean, I, I yes, don't. Yes, yes, yes. We have we have witnesses to that effect. They're in cryogenic suspension. Yes. Okay. Um, and I guess they're still being studied to try to figure out what makes them tick, or. or... Well, I, I suspect by this time they know what they, they they've learned as much as they can learn from the uh, the autopsies. But uh, the one that was still alive, they, they must have learned some things from it because, I mean, if the firemen could converse with it, certainly the uh, scientists at Wright-Patterson and Battelle could converse with it the same way by talking in your heads. So uh, well, what wanted, they learned, we don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, this is mere speculation, but it seems like the firefighter who uh, encountered the being had no malice, so just sort of wanted to go to hell. Right. The, right. the scientist, maybe not. Then the being, if it was telepathic, maybe, you know, maybe well, it wouldn't that, talk. That uh, leads to the question of how long did it live? Mm. And uh, one of the eyewitnesses, and we get this story from his son, because a lot, uh, a lot of the witnesses, uh, Jeffrey, by the time we got to them, they had passed away, but the children were responsive because the, the parent passed on the information to a son or daughter. And uh, the information we got from the son of one of the officers who saw the live being at Wright-Patterson in early 1948. This was like six months, well, maybe a, maybe nine months after the crash. He encountered it at Wright-Patterson along with a number of other officers in this Air War College class. And uh, they were led into a windowless room. There were about 60 of them, 60 of them. And then on the wall was this uh, mirror it was one of these see-through mirrors that you could see through it, but anything on the other side could not see back through it. One way. So there, there. So this one witness uh, who we were able to locate uh, and interview his son because he had passed away said that uh, they looked through this window and there was this strange creature. They were also they didn't know what, what to expect. It was this three to half to four foot tall creature with a large head, and we don't know if it was standing there, sitting there, or doing the macarena. <laughs> uh, but he said uh, he had an immediate emotional connection to it, and by that I mean he said he felt he felt its human humanness rather than its alienness. They didn't talk. But he said he had this emotional connection to it immediately, and he felt great sympathy for it, and he felt the humanness of it, the human qualities, even though it wasn't human, uh, rather than its alienness. So the son said, well, what, what happened to it? And he said, they killed it. Uh-oh, what do we got here, the St. Valentine's Day massacre? No, it wasn't that. They were doing some sort of experiment on it, like, you know, who knows what, and it died or expired during one, some procedure they were doing on it or to it. And that was in 1952. So it lived until 1952, as far as we know. So that's five years. Yes. Okay. So, all right. So earlier on, you said that you would discuss how they flew here, um, so what can you tell us about the technology? Because I, I don't that's remember. a good, and that's a good question because our mandate, Jeffrey, was uh, not to not to uh, find out those things. You know why they why they were here, and uh, how did they, how did they get here? All we were trying to do was to determine whether this event had happened or didn't happen, not how it happened. You know, mm -hmm. well. In, in recent months, this, this, uh, I would say only within the last year, I finally started thinking, well, geez, how did it get, wherever it came from, 
it couldn't have been something like what the technology we have now, like a rocketry or jet aircraft. It couldn't have been that way. It had to be something else. And I had over the years had listened to uh, scientists talking about bending space, you know, to, that you have to bend space somehow. And I said, woo, that's way over my head. You know, uh, I'm an anthropologist. I, I'm, I'm interested in evolution and things like that. But bending of space, I think, well, that, that would make sense. You would just, rather than having to travel all that distance, you would just jump over it. Uh, or a black hole or something, I don't know. And uh, that's as far as I got. Uh, but I do, I did conclude that it had to be something really different than what we have. Well, it turned out that um, this is like about five years ago, we had a witness. He was German and he knew some of the paperclip Germans who had come over after World War II. Had be Werner von Braun and uh, a couple of the others. Uh, Von Braun became the father of our space program. Sure, the father the, of our space program. The Huntsville, Alabama crew. Yes, yes. In '47, they were all they were all housed in uh, El Paso, Texas, at uh, Fort Bliss. And uh, Von Braun and a few of the others worked, got out to the crash site when it was in situ, or rather, it was still. Uh, it still hadn't been recovered yet. It was still in the ground and what have you. Uh, they were there because our, our government was co- was concerned whether it was a Russian device or not. That's what they were concerned about. Well, anyway, this uh, German fellow, he was a doc- medical doctor, comes into the museum in Roswell, and he says, uh, I have this friend who um, was one of the original paperclip Germans. His name was Ernst Steinhoff. He was second in command, just below uh, Von Braun. He was a physicist. He worked on guided missiles. That was his. See, Von Braun's specialty was outer space rockets. Steinhoff's was guided missiles. So he he uh, also got to the crash site, and uh, he worked on uh, the guided missile program in uh, uh, Alamogordo, Holloman uh, uh, Air Force Base. And he's in the uh, New Mexico uh, Hall of Rocket Scientists, or whatever, whatever the highest uh, Hall of Fame in New Mexico for rocketry. He's in the Hall of Fame there. Well, I interviewed his son because he had passed away. Because this doctor that had come into the museum told us, "Here's the guy that's going to tell you what happened at Roswell." Well, there were two brothers, Ernst and Ralph uh, Steinhoff. The older brother I interviewed first, and he claims, oh, I don't know anything. My father and I, we never talked about this. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) uh, He called me. He called me. It sounded like he was at a Panzer reunion. (laughs) You know, (laughs) a lot of talk in the background. I said, this guy's at a Panzer reunion. Anyway, he didn't know anything anyway. He said he didn't know anything. Well, I called the younger son. And the younger son tried that I don't know anything thing on me. He said, but my father did say, those who talk don't know, but those who know don't talk. So that was that was his big saying to me. He says, oh, so the son says, oh, by the way, 
uh, do you know what the weight to mass ratio was uh, of that uh, ship? I don't make the weight to mass ratio. What are you talking about? Well, that's something his father would have talked about. And he says, oh, by the way, it, uh, I got to tell you that uh, what crashed at Roswell was not an extraterrestrial. They weren't extraterrestrial. They were extra dimensional. Well, he had to get that from his father he, because his father was heavily involved, according to the son, in the analysis of the, of the Roswell wreckage and the, what was, you know, the whole Roswell crash. So his, his son says, oh, it wasn't extraterrestrial. It was extra dimensional. So, oh, my goodness. Well, if Uncle Harry had told me that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have paid any attention to it, you know. But coming from, say, Ernst Steinhoff, who was a rocket-guided missile expert who worked in those areas, was involved in Roswell. So I filed that away. So I filed that away. Oh, maybe six months after that, uh, um, uh, we're writing our book, uh, The Case Closed, or Roswell, or The Element Called Case Closed, which was the book that came out before this one. And uh, so we have a we have an associate lives in Florida. His name is Anthony Bergaglia. He has worked ten years on trying to find out what became of the Roswell wreckage. That's his. Uh, and he gave me a story, and it was the story. And I checked this with the source. The source of the story was Bill Burns, who used to uh, have a UFO hunter show on TV. Uh, Bill Burns. He's a a PhD and a, uh, a lawyer. He's got a law degree and a PhD, and he's been, uh, you know, UFO uh, hunter. UFO. Uh, he wrote a book called "The Day After Roswell," and uh, so he told William Burns that number one, Roswell was a crash of beings from somewhere else. It was a real crash of beings from somewhere else. It was not so much extraterrestrial as extra temporal time travelers. So coming from uh, the, the uh, source of that story was a, a Navy a, a rocket expert by the name of uh, oh my goodness, George Hoover. He, Commander George Hoover passed away, but he told Bill Burns he was he, he was on Werner von Braun's team, and he learned all this stuff. And the word was that this was not extraterrestrial; it was extra temporal. So coming from those two people, that's the best I have, uh, Jeffrey. That's well, the best I have. Probably five years ago, that would have sounded absolutely crazy, but based on some of the science that's come out, it, it seems like that's more plausible and, and easier than than extraterrestrial, just given the time. He, he, he even took it one step further. I just remembered. He took it one step further. He said it was us from a future world. Ah. He said it was us from the future. Well, that explains why they could breathe our atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, well, that's one explanation. Anyway. That's what he said. And so, like I said, coming from uh, Uncle Billy or Uncle Harry over a, over a uh, uh, Bud Light, uh, I, I, I wouldn't pay so much attention. But coming from those two fellows, uh, you know, I have to pay attention to that. Hmm. 
Well, the, the anatomy certainly changed a lot in whatever amount of time that was, but what do I know? Maybe, maybe. But it, but it, but it follows what I... It follows my understanding of how evolution works. They look like exactly what I thought, if that happened, what they would look like. But it also might not be evolution. It might have been genetic modification to survive better. I mean, the, the, maybe food got scarce and they came up with another way. Who knows? I mean, of themselves, purposefully. I mean, we've got CRISPR now and the, and the, the whole genome is mapped. Who knows? Anyway, yes. anyway this, this is ranked... Yes, well, and the Nisavin, but yeah, this is rank speculation at this point. Um, and yeah, you know, we—I already went down the whole sheep thing, and I'm—I'm still—I'm still—I'm letting it go with you, but I'm not letting it go entirely. I—I'm I'm still wondering about the sheep uh, crop there. Crop's not the right word. Um, all right. So, uh, and and by the way, just uh, when you said the. Uh, what was the paperclip Germans? So, just in case the audience doesn't know, in after the Allies defeated the Germans in World War II, the Japanese theater was still very much ongoing, and the Germans were way ahead of us in rocketry, um, and they were probably also ahead of us in rocketry with regards to their atomic program, and a lot of the top scientists were basically plucked or asked to relocate or told to relocate. And taken by what was, it wasn't the CIA then, but by the U.S. defense intelligence agencies and, and brought to the United States. And uh, and uh, Fort Bliss, you, you mentioned, I know Huntsville was 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 where a lot of them did their work afterwards. And I think it was actually named after, or there's an area called Little Germany or Little Hamburg or something. Um, and the, the Von Brauns are the, the most famous. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, I mean, this is not a secret. This is not top secret. This is history. It's well known that uh, a lot of former Third Reich scientists were used to launch our space program and, and probably a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, so that's all true. Um, all right. So you told us what happened in Roswell. You told us, uh, you know, what, what may have been the... Uh, the, the motor where they came from the another dimension possibly uh, our own future who knows uh, another dimension can be a lot of things it doesn't just have to be time uh, but it's more likely a dimension rather than another solar system just because of the time it would take unless they found some sort of warp or or space bending technology which is is possible though they got hit by lightning so maybe not I don't know um but they were in their corporeal state at that point. When it was struck by lightning or it exploded, they were in their, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that, corporeal state, yeah. physical state. Corporeal, yeah. Um, so, oh, so you're suggesting that when they were, when, uh, before they got into the atmosphere, that they're sort of in a, I don't know a better term to describe it other than Merkaba, sort of in, a, in, in sort of a, Fluid, well, non-corporeal or incorporeal would be the word, but uh, almost like a, uh, you know, sort of Schrodinger's cat thing, sort of half here, half not there, uh, sort of almost like ghostly in a, in a, in a yeah, yeah. ethereal it, form. It, it, uh, they, they were not in their time travel state. They were in their physical state at that point. Okay. But so they, come, they came to the conclusion that they were time travelers. And how they did that, I, I, I don't know. But that, that was the conclusion they, they had come to. But the military didn't shoot it down. As far as we know, they did not. Okay. Uh, we always we hear, oh, maybe they shot it down. Well, there's no evidence to that 
the, the most likely, you know, using Occam's razor, the most likely scenario was either A, an internal uh, malfunction of some sort, or a lightning strike. Because back at that time, it was uh, New Mexico's monsoon season, where they had these huge thunder and lightning storms. And that night, there was a lightning storm, thunder and lightning storm, where several witnesses heard a strange explosion. And the next day, uh, Mac Brazel found all that wreckage in his sheep pasture, the, uh, the Golandrina uh, draw. Have you ever encountered Reverend Jim Williamson? No. Okay. He, he had a he had a museum in Roswell for a little bit, um, or maybe a lot of it, but I, I can't remember the amount of time. But he, uh, I, I'd spoken to him, and he uh, he ran a museum there for a while. Um, not important. Um, okay, so. We talked about, I mean, basically, I sort of jumped from, you were talking to the provost officer, Isley, uh, to what happened at Roswell. Um, what, you know, I guess from Isley to your conclusions, what were sort of the big steps? Who were sort of the big, the big people that you spoke to that, that were enabled you to put together this puzzle? And, I, and I'm sure you touched on some of them already. The, you know, Jeffrey, it's not so much big just the quantity of people, little, little little steps that you put them all together. It's like a, a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces, uh, and they're all they're all about the same size, and a pick, you form a tapestry. And uh, uh, we do have a couple biggies, as as we call them. Uh, 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 Colonel Easley, uh, uh, certainly up there. Uh, another fellow was. Uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, Jesse Marcel, or if you know Roswell case without Jesse Marcel. Um, uh, the, another fellow by the name of uh, William uh, Rickett, Bill Rickett, and he was a uh, uh, senior master sergeant on the base at the time. And the fellow that went out to the crash site with Jesse Marcel that day was a Captain Sheridan Cabot, right? He was a counterintelligence officer. His job was to seek out Russian spies, you know, uh, and he went out with the, uh, Marcel. And so we interviewed him several times and he kept, first he denied that he was in the Air Corps. Then he denied that he was at Roswell. Then he denied that he was involved. Lie, lie, lie. And uh, because he's, the information we had from Marcel was that Cabot was with him and uh, wrote a report about it. Well, uh, Rickett was Cabot's right-hand man in the counterintelligence office. And when we interviewed him, he just put the lie to everything that uh, Cabot had said. So without him, we wouldn't have uh, been able to identify Cabot as a key participant in the case. And uh, Rickett went out to the, he was out at the crash site. He, uh, when he got out there, uh, he wanted to pick up a piece of wreckage and he, his question was, to easily, is this stuff hot? Meaning, is it radioactive? And he said, no, it's not hot. Go ahead and see what you can... And he couldn't bend it. He couldn't do anything with it. So he told about the secrecy and how Cabot was lying. 
And uh, so he would be up there as one of the key witnesses to, to the truth of this event. And uh, uh, mostly, though, uh, Jeffrey was a witness who knew a little piece of the puzzle, a little piece of the puzzle. And you put all those together and you've got the picture. And that's what Walter Howe, Walter Howe was the public information officer. He was the first lieutenant back in 47. We got to know him very well. He was a good friend of ours uh, for 20 years. He died in 2005. Uh, for years, all he said was, well, I put out the press release. Uh, Colonel uh, Blanchard uh, called me in. He dictated the, the press release that we had captured a flying saucer, and I delivered it to all the, the media in Roswell. And that, that's all I know. And we're thinking, that's all you know? You're right in the middle of the biggest story of the millennium, and, you, and you're not curious as to what was going on? We didn't believe that for a second. Well, over the years, we interviewed other witnesses, and they had told us, oh, yeah, Walter had a piece of the wreckage. He did this. He did that. He was at the crash site, blah, 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 blah. So what we did is we put together a uh, what was to be a sealed statement because he, he had promised that Blanchard that he would never talk about this for the rest of his life. He would never publicly talk about this. Other, other than he would say, well, it was a UFO, but just don't ask me how I know. That, that, that was as far as he would go. Well, we put together a sealed statement of what we knew that he had done, what he was involved in. We said, okay, Walter, would you be up to signing us after you pass away? He said, okay, let me look at it. We said, look it over, look it over with your family, look it over with your lawyer change what you want to change, delete what you want to delete, and add what you want to add. And a few months went by, and it turned out he signed the whole thing. He didn't change anything. He didn't add anything. He didn't, he didn't delete anything. We put it away. This was 2002. He died three years later. We opened up the sealed statement, and uh, we included it in our first Roswell book. Well, that's a lot and, of trust, and that's a lot of... Uh rewarding of trust there um yeah i mean he trusted you and, and you guys sat on it for three years and i mean for all you knew it could have been longer um yes. but this is a good segue because i i mean I, we should have mentioned it already i should have anyway so there's a few books that, that the folks should know about for sure 2007 co-authored with don schmidt witness to roswell unmasking the 60-year cover-up the sequel is written two years later witness to roswell unmasking the government's biggest cover-up in those three years, those were the two number one best-selling UFO books in the world during that three-year period, 2007-2009. Uh, um, and they're considered to be the best books written about the 1947 Roswell incident and, and uh, obviously the aftermath. Uh, there's a motion picture that's planned. There's a TV miniseries that may be planned. I know there's lots of things that are planned out there, but hopefully those will come to fruition. Um there was also a later book uh, called Inside the Real Area 51 about the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. We talked about it, obviously, in Dayton. I made my little Dayton joke, which cost me whatever listeners I have in Dayton uh, or, or fans of Dayton, uh, probably forever. Just kidding, Dayton. I'm sure, I'm sure it's lovely. I, I've been to Urbana. Um, uh, and uh, that book was uh, released in 2013. It reached number one in Amazon's 
astronomy and space science category. Uh, and it was also one of the top, well, it was in the top 100 books of the year. One of them, so it's redundant, uh, for 2013. Um, another book was uh, called the, the Children of Roswell. That's from 2016. Also reached number one in its category in Amazon. Another book called UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. That's from 2019. It's a bestseller, uh, and it's still a bestseller, uh, at least at the time that this biography was written. Um, and Roswell, the chronological pictorial, and Roswell, the ultimate cold case closed, both were released in 2020. They just recently hit the market, obviously. So, uh, you know, maybe there's some more data on that that, uh, you know, Tom's here so he can share with us if he'd like. And then, of course, we talked about Touched by Roswell, which just came out in 2021. We talked about it earlier with people at Touched by Roswell. It really is a very interesting and, and really an, an easy read. I don't know if the other ones are easy or not, but this is an easy read. It's a nice summer read, and it's interesting. So it's, you're, not, you're not reading about nothing, even though it's it's what I would call light reading. Um, and there's a book coming out, hopefully next year, called Witness to Roswell. And that's in honor of the 75th anniversary. Um, you've been published in many languages, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, so I don't know if you want to highlight any of the, the recent books, any of the accomplishments, or what you know, any if there's any new developments in the publications, or if we should be looking for something on TV or Netflix or the movies anytime soon. <laughs> you covered a lot of territory, yes. Uh I had a uh, Discovery Channel six-part series on Roswell just concluded. I was the uh, historical consultant on that show, and uh, it shows on the Discovery Plus channel. Um, We have, uh, this is a real, we thought we had Ron Howard to do a Roswell movie, and uh, he came to us. And, uh, you know, he's done Cocoon, he's done uh, a lot of big movies. Ron, Ron Howard was, uh, um, oh my God, I can't believe it again. Richie Cunningham in Happy Days. Richie Cunningham, yes. Yeah, but and, he's, he's uh, done tons of movies, a million movies. At one point it was, he's going to do it, and I thought, oh boy, I'm going to be able to get that house up in the mountains. <laughs> and uh, it uh, turned out, he in the end, he turned it down. Uh, and we don't know why, but it looked like it was a go. So next year is the 75th anniversary of the Roswell crash. And we thought that uh, a movie coming out next year would be just because Roswell is known all all over the world, Jeffrey. You mentioned the name Roswell. They know what you're talking about. They might not know the details. But they know it, it had something to do with the crash of an alien spaceship. So you have, and, and UFOs right now, Jeffrey, are hot because of the uh, government report that came out, even though underwhelming as it was. Uh, UFOs are hot now because of those videos that they've been showing for the last uh, four years. Mm-hmm. So you have all those things. It's a perfect storm from our point of view. You that whoever finally does a movie on Roswell, and we're going to get one for next year, uh, Ron Howard is going to be sorry he turned it, he turned it down. But uh, we hope to have we hope to have a movie for next year. We already have a book in the in the hopper. It's the third witness to Roswell in the trilogy, 
the uh, first two you mentioned already. The third one will come out. The third witness to Roswell will come out next year, updated, and uh, that most likely will be our last Roswell book. We still we are still finding new information about the case, right? But it's but it all just corroborates what we already know. It's like no, no new bombshell. It's just corroborating the framework of the case that we've already put together. So most likely, especially with the the all, all of the first-hand witnesses, all of them are, are gone now. Right. And uh, these the offspring, the sons and daughters, are also starting to pass on. And right. uh, so, there, finding a new witness uh, is uh, most unlikely from our perspective so most likely it will be the last roswell book that we write on has any of the videos and the pictures and and the stuff that's been released over the last four or five years that it's basically been acknowledged does the the look or the description of those vehicles from what you could eyeball match what was found in roswell or is it just impossible to tell uh most likely uh, most likely it was a disc uh, uh, you know, your classic uh, image of a flying saucer circular that and and what you see today, like those videos, it doesn't uh, it, mo, mo, uh, Jeffrey, the UFOs have had every shape imaginable uh, that has uh, the, this tic-tac thing mm-hmm. well, you know that that's, I mean, where did that come from? And that thing that they, they have on the gun camera that looks like a top you know a top a spinning top you know things like that but the as far as we know from the wreckage that has been described and the shape of it it was your classic 1947 flying saucer or disc okay do you have any take on on all of the videos that we're seeing i mean any reason why it's all coming out now is it yes yes the uh uh I was never one that believed that the disclosure would take place, but these two videos, or two or three that they're showing over and over and over again, has had an impact because you look at that and it, it's it's at the source is the U.S. Navy, uh, and they they admit that this is real video. It's not made on your computer. Even the Defense Department admits that yes this, these videos are real although they you know they came late to the game but they had to say something so those videos have had an impact and people want an answer to the point where the, the defense department was charged by the uh, senate to come up with a report of what the foes well they came they came up very short in my humble opinion uh, oh, we there's something out there. We don't know what it is, but we'll keep looking. We we don't know what it is, and we're going to change the name from UFO to UAP. Right. Oh, that's just great. Well, what about other countries? I mean, we're not the only country in the world. Obviously, there's 190 something other countries, maybe 200 and something, depending on who you're listening to. Um, you know, are are any of those governments coming out with any information? Uh, I think France did a couple of years ago. The, the COVID, I, I, uh, my mind is a little foggy on that. The COVID or something like that, they came out with a report that looked promising. Uh, I think Britain is still covering up. A lot of your South American countries are, are more 
forthcoming with information. And I'll tell you the next the next two best cases, in my opinion, it's not the Rendlesham case, not Rendlesham Forest, sure. but uh, it's it's a West Hall, Australia case. And it's in Bob, uh, West Hall of 1966, where a UFO landed at a, a, a school where all the students came out, the teachers that came out, they came within touching distance of this craft that landed on their front lawn. Is this the West one in Hall. South Australia near Melbourne? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yes, West Hall. And the other one is the 1996 uh, Zimbabwe uh, landing again, where actually a being came out. They had the uh, uh, students draw what they saw, thought they saw, and they interviewed them about just last year. They had grown up, and they 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 were not lying. They they had they had seen a landed UFO and a being that had come out, and they drew the being, and they all drew the same thing. And so those are the two best next best cases, at least in my opinion. Do you have any information on how many fingers or toes uh, these these greys had? No. Okay, because no. I, uh, I cannot even remember where I got this information from, but it wasn't very long ago that apparently there was a tribe in South America and it had a name and the locals knew about it. Apparently they went extinct a couple hundred years ago, but they were small. They were described as grey and having three fingers and three toes. I was just wondering. Now, of course, there's also the sort of the religious or a-religious, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, stories about the six-figure, six-fingered and six-toed uh, creatures, but those are normally considered giants. But, I mean, there's sort of like myths of greys all over the place, right. but, this, but the size right. is different. Of course, there's also stories about reptilians and ant people and things like that. So, um, anyway, it, 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 you know. On, a, on another, not to switch gears, but to let you know, is... Uh I uh, had the chance to go on a you know Bigfoot uh, expedition. Uh, it's going to be t- be taking place in uh, two weeks. That's great. But it's at, in New Jersey in the Pinelands. Really. And uh, the um, fellow who's organizing is a his name is Eric Mintel. He's a jazz piano player. He has the Eric Mintel Quartet played at the White House, and you know, very famous, but he's into paranormal, and he's put together a team to go into the Pine Barrens at night to, because there have been reports of, uh, you know, Bigfoot, and so I'm going to be interviewed on that as to what possibly might be, and, you know, they talk about uh, the... Uh, you know, the Roger Patterson Gimlin film from 1967 is the best uh, film that we have a, allegedly on it. It shows a, you know, a uh, hominid, a bipedal uh, being, uh, like a, you know, like a gorilla with fur and all that sort of stuff. And if that, if that film is genuine, then Bigfoot is not. They try to say, oh, it's uh, Gigantopithecus. That's a, well, that's, a, that's impossible. Gigantopithecus was a place to see uh, if you take a gorilla and magnify it uh, twice or three times the yeah. size of a gorilla. That's that's uh, Gigantopithecus. Right. It was like a 12-foot gorilla, basically. Yes, yes. So that's that's out, but they keep throwing that, oh, it's, it's 
was a Neanderthal. Well, it's not Neanderthal. Neanderthal was a, was a uh, uh, was in the human line of evolution. It wasn't wasn't Bigfoot. There were only Neanderthals were like five foot between five foot and five foot five. They were short and squat. Yeah, they weren't they weren't bigger than us. I mean, they were shaped a little bit differently, but uh, yeah. So I just completed, believe it or not, uh, Jeffrey, a, a, a class on human paleontology. And surprise, surprise, the professor, uh, this is at Temple University, was into Bigfoot. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, mostly, uh, you know, your professional professors, they, they don't want to get into this stuff. But he said, no, no, if Bigfoot, if there is a Bigfoot, it's certainly a hominid rather than a ponchid, uh, an ape. Uh, and which one it is, it's either a one called Meganthropus, which is a long, you know, it's an ancient uh, a hominid, maybe eight, nine, ten feet tall. That's a, one, one of the things that they say, these things are so tall. And uh, so it's, it's either Meganthropus or something he called Homo floriensis. Now, I wasn't familiar with either one, but I looked them up and uh, I'm saying, well, yes, that, uh, they're both hominids, they're both in the human line, but they're not human. Is Meganthropus what they used to call Australopithecus robustus? Yeah. No, no. Australopithecus robustus was a uh, vegetarian uh, Australopithecine, and it was like five, it was between five, and, you know, about five foot five. Yeah. Well, that's not that robust. <laughs> yeah, but it, but the ones that are being reported are like eight, nine, ten feet tall. Right. Yeah. And Meganthropus was was that tall. And if you put fur on them, that's Bigfoot. Sure. Because we don't know if it had fur or not. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, it, it was, they they have dis- discovered different kinds of uh, hominids recently. Yeah. Not not that they're living, but you know. Denisovans, probably within the last 10 years, they found a different type of human that I don't even think they've named it yet in Indonesia that's, uh, I think, 7,200 years old. Uh, they found the, uh, like the, they call them the Hobbit people. I think that's Florians yeah. uh, in, well, I think, the, the Philippines. Hobbits are, the Hobbits are little. Right. But they, they, but they also, they, were, they found them in the Philippines, but they found another one, I think, in Central or North America recently. So... Um, they're, they're finding stuff all the time and that's, that's not gonna, I think that's only gonna get more and more. Um, and you know, I, I don't know why we're surprised. I mean, if we look at every other kind of animal there, there's all t- sorts of diversity. So, uh, I, I don't know why we think it. The, the, well, I, I, I basically had given up on the, the uh, uh, Bigfoot because, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, by now, we would have found, you know, there's so many people looking for it uh, with cameras looking for body. They can't find a body. And most of the films that we see, they're, they're blurry and they're taken between. I'm thinking there's just, there's just nothing here I can grab onto other than that Patterson-Gimlin film from 1967. And there's even question about that. Oh, sure. So I was about to give up until my uh, anthropology professor this past uh Fall, he said, "Well, no, it's uh, uh, he's been into this himself, and it's uh, he says it's Meganthropus. I mean, Meganthropus. I never heard of Megan. 
because it's been a couple of years since I've been in the discipline. And he said, uh, he says, well, look it up and you take a look. Well, I looked it up and I said, oh my goodness, that's it. So uh, my my interest is renewed. I would have gone on the, this uh, expedition, but it's at night, and I I like to be home at night. So so <laughs> so I'm going to be interviewed before it take before they hit the uh, the trail. You're what we call a consultant. It's all, yes. Right. Uh, <laughs> it, it, by any chance, is Chris O'Brien part of this? Uh, I, I do not know that, uh, okay. Jeffrey. I don't, don't know. Well, Chris is uh, he, he's a paranormal investigator. He, I had him on the show probably about six or seven weeks ago. He uh, Most of his work is, is from the San Luis Valley in the Four Corners, Colorado, not, not, not too far from where the part right. of the world we were talking about, uh, though I think he's in upstate New York now, so actually he'd probably be into that. But uh, And he said, he on my show, and, and I'm sure it wasn't the first time, though, uh, because I don't think we broke any news, but he said he, he's seen Bigfoots and, and, and couples. I mean, he called them cryptids, and I pushed him on right. what kind of cryptid. He right. said, well, Bigfoot. I mean, what, what do you think I'm talking about? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I've uh, talked to people who have seen it, and I, I believe them. I believe them. And, uh, uh, but I'm, like I said, because they haven't gotten even a good photo, you know, I sort of lost interest in it because uh, there's been no good photos or videos of it other than the Patterson-Gimlin film. But uh, the part is also famous for the Jersey Devil, sightings of the Jersey Devil. And uh, so I got to thinking, I said, oh, uh, number one, I don't want to really be in the woods uh, uh, late at night and actually meet Bigfoot. I said I don't want to do. I don't want to meet Bigfoot. He's fine on television, but thinking about it in person in the pine barrens late at night, it's everything. I said I don't think I want to. I don't think I want that to happen. So, you may you may find the Russian guy from The Sopranos who they chased away naked, and you we never saw him again. He never came back. He ran into right. the, he ran right. into the Pine Barrens. Um, yes, maybe he's Bigfoot. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's it's something that, you know it's interesting. Well, I hope they they find it or him, her, it, some evidence. I I think that would be enormous but I you know right now I'm sort of with you that I, I think that it's probably was a uh, hominid that, that you know overlapped with us at some point but right. maybe doesn't anymore or maybe very occasionally uh, in our case not all hominids became sapiens and uh, this this is most likely one branch that survives but it didn't cross over into uh, uh, the sapiens line. Yeah, I'm a big believer in collective memories. I'm just not sure which are memories and which are, you know, are, are uh, you know, still in existence uh, or at the source of the memory. I mean, you know, I, I again, right. you know, that the, well, I, I do love people can subscribe and listen to all the shows to, to get a flavor of that. But um, I, I really thank you for your expertise on this. I think we covered all all of the books or at least the recent ones are, are there anything else that is it, can people follow you somewhere do you have a, a patreon yes, we, have, YouTube? we have a website uh, don schmidt and i it's www.roswellinvestigator.com that's www.roswellinvestigator.com we have all of our books uh, covers shown there if you click on one it'll take you to amazon uh, where you can purchase it 
and all of our books, uh, even our original book, A Witness to Roswell, it's now from 2009, uh, is still for sale. Still for sale. They're still, it's still selling. And uh, all of our other books are selling. Uh, the only one that's not selling anymore. No, it, they, they, they all are selling. So uh, Amazon would be, or Barnes & Noble, uh, one of the last bookstores of, uh, still working. Uh, you can get it there as well. Excellent. So, all right. Great. And they should uh, possibly be looking out for the new book and those other projects. Listen, if, if you learn they find Bigfoot, Please let us know and come back again or send one of them over. And when your new book comes out, you're, you're certainly invited to come back again with any new information or with, or with yes, Mr. Our, Schmidt. That would be great. new book, Touched by Roswell, uh, there's even a chapter in there on Elvis. Elvis Presley uh, was touched by Roswell. Uh, a lot of famous names that readers would, I, would uh, know. Uh, that have been touched by Roswell somewhere in their life. Yeah, it's 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 a fun book. I'm not I'm not just blowing smoke. It's 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 a fun book, and it's an I, I keep calling it a summer read, but it really is. It's a nice summer read, but it's interesting. It's 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 not what I expected when uh, when Mr. Mantle suggests I pick it up. Um, but I was I was I was glad. It was interesting, and obviously a few of them made an impression on me, and probably different ones will make different impressions on other people. But that I, I remembered. Ned Dawson, uh, dancing, and I'm like, because uh, I, I, because yeah, then I went to Nedard Stark and all of that stuff. But anyway, thank you so much for your time, your generosity, continued success. Um, maybe you'll change your mind and you'll go in into those pine barrens. Who knows? I'm sure you'll be fine. But uh, happy, happy hunting to that crew, or or not hunting, happy sighting. Uh, no hunting. I'll go in the pine barrens when the Orioles wind up in first place. Oh, well, then, then, then you're safe. You're Consider yourself retired. Um, all right. Thanks, Jeffrey. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much again. My pleasure. All right, folks. Uh, just said goodbye to Tom Carey. So, yeah, pick up his book um, or books. Um, check them out. And I really hope you're enjoying UFO theme month so far. Um I've just been really pleased with speaking to these different researchers and not having the same story told over and over again. That, that I was sort of worried about the redundancy. And as of this time, I've recorded three individuals and with three very different um, angles. I don't even want to say stories, but just completely different it's almost like they're different topics. Um, so hopefully the beat will carry on and I've gotten more yeses. So the good news is if you're enjoying this, there's probably going to be another UFO month next year in 2022. Or maybe I'll just sprinkle the episodes in depending on, again, the level of uh, overlap in them. And I, I don't necessarily think that redundancy is a bad thing. I mean, anyone who's been listening to me knows I say the same things plenty of times. Um, and probably some of you could do drinking games to some of those um, and share them with me because, uh, hey, I'm not above that either. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, I'll drop them in there. And if, you know, if they are sort of similar stories or similar in theme, I'll, I'll sprinkle them in periodically. Uh, but if I continue to get lucky with people with very different vantages, very different perspectives, very different stories, uh, uh all of the above. Uh, I'll do another theme month in UFOs next year. Um, I'm enjoying this sort of theme month thing with the pop culture and, and the UFOs. Um, 
So I thank you. Please listen again. As always, please give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. Tell your friends. Share the show. Uh, I get great feedback on it. Um, and it this is a show which sort of defies genre, or at least a neat one, or at least one that I know, and really is dependent upon your referrals. So those of you who love this, the show, I mean, some of you have offered to, to write songs for the show and, and, you know, things like that, which is amazing. Um, but even more so, share the show with, with, you know, people who you think might be interested. One thing about the show is that there's eventually going to be something for everybody and probably every five or six weeks there's something for everybody so not every show is for everybody but this show writ large is for everybody so again thanks a lot tune in next week see you next week
fancy a free caffeine fix? At Coles Express, every tenth coffee is free. Scan your Flybys card every time you buy any coffee or iced coffee and your tent is on the house. For a free coffee, express yourself. At Coles Express, T's and C's apply.